Last week we were here in this story and we focused on one man in particular. This is a very, very difficult time in the life of a city called Samaria. There was famine, there was war with the Syrians, a bloodthirsty king named Ben-Hadad was just like his father, Ben-Hadad I, and they were attacking, they had besieged the city of Samaria, surrounded it, and because of that, they had cut off the food supply. There was no food coming in, no salted fish was making its way in, no fruits and vegetables from outside the walls of the city had made it in, and because of that, there was a great famine in the land. We talked about that in detail last week, the famine. And we examined the response of one man who was a right-hand man, a captain, if you will, uh, someone who would be representative in our government of a chief of staff, an upper echelon individual who has the king's ear. The king confides in this man. The king trusts this man. And Elisha, who is the prophet of God of the day, brings great tidings that there's going to be a change. Uh, Elisha stands and he says, in 24 hours, this entire situation, this entire circumstance is going to change. God is going to bring food to the city. And he says, by this time tomorrow, 24 hours, the entire circumstance is going to change. And everybody will be able to eat. And not only will they be able to get the food, but they'll be able to afford the food. And the Bible gives us a description of just how bad and how terrible this famine really was, there was hyperinflation on what you would consider trash. The head of a carcass of a donkey was bringing pounds of silver so that people could take that home and that be their food. Uh, people were buying ounces of dove's droppings and paying astronomical amounts of money for the droppings of a bird. And that was what they had access to to eat. And they were paying, yet again, pounds of silver for what you would discard as trash. And Elijah makes the prophecy. He says, here's what's going to happen. Everything's going to change. You're going to have food and you're going to be able to afford it. And this captain, this chief of staff, this upper echelon man who had the ear of the king, he hears the prophecy and then instantly he shows what's in his heart. He reveals out loud what he really is living in. And he openly doubts God. He makes almost light of the capability of God. And he says something, and I'm paraphrasing here, but he says something along these lines. Even if God could put windows in heaven, there's no way we're going to be able to have that food by tomorrow. He doubted God's capability. He doubted God's capacity. And he doubted that God was even in control of the situation at all. And Elisha instantly responds to his doubt. And Elisha says, Lord, king, captain, sir, you will see the food. You'll see that the prophecy has come to fruition. The people will get their food and they'll be able to pay for it and they'll afford it. But you'll see it, but you won't taste of it. You'll see the food come in. You'll see the prophecy answered. But because of your disbelief, because of your doubt, you won't taste one ounce of the food that comes into this city. And the Bible's clear. That man goes. He is sent to the gate as the food arrives. 
The king sends this man, this chief of staff, this lord, this captain to the gate. It says that he dies as the people are going to the food. They literally trample him to death getting to the food. And as he died, the last thing he saw on this earth, this side of eternity, was people being fed. And he was doubting God and he died hungry. Now, that's the story of that man. Now let's look for a moment at the king whom he served. The king whom he served. And let's look at how he responds and what God has for us here. The first thing we need to look at and understand to understand this story is the king's relationship with God's man, Elisha. Go to chapter 6, go to verse number 9 and verse number 10. Let's look at this. And the man of God sent unto the king of Israel, saying, Beware that thou pass not such a place, for thither the Syrians are come down. And the king of Israel sent to the place which the man of God told him and warned him of, and saved himself there not once nor twice. That means he never went. Elisha was giving the king of Israel, this same king who had a captain who doubted God and died hungry, this king had access to Elisha. They had a relationship. And because of the war with Benadad that was taking place, the Syrians... God was giving Elisha exact details of the movements and the military strategy of the Syrians. And Elisha is telling the king exactly where he needs to go on the day and the time that he needs to do it. And the king of Israel is getting divine top secret information to be able to move his troops, to move his people. And the king of Syria, Ben-Hadad, is so upset because every time he moves, it's like the Israelites know what's coming. And so he goes mad. He thinks, well, I've got a traitor in my camp. Someone of my own household has betrayed me. And that wasn't the case. The case was that God was listening to his heart and then God was going to his servant and telling Elisha exactly what he was going to be doing so that the king could know where to go and how to move. This is the relationship of the king and God's man, Elisha. Now, this Syrian king, he's enraged that things are taking place the way they are. And he gets suspicious. He goes, I, I bet old Elisha has something to do with this. And so he constructs a plan to capture and kill Elisha and take Samaria. As they go out, as they look for Elisha, there's confusion that sets in and there's so much here, but God divinely sends blindness to this army. They have no idea where they are. And through supernatural workings, God uses Elisha to deliver the bulk of this army and he brings them straight to the gate of Samaria. He brings them straight to the place where their enemy was waiting for them. God used Elisha to capture the enemy and bring them to this king. Now notice what happens after Elisha has brought this army to the gates of Samaria. Go into the 21st verse of chapter 6. And notice what happens here. Again, we're getting context about the relationship, the working relationship between Elisha and this king. The 21st verse. And the king of Israel said unto Elisha, when he saw them, them being the army 
that Elisha has brought to the gate. My father, my father. Underline that, highlight that, circle it, star it, but pay attention to how he's talking to Elisha. He says, my father, shall I smite them? And then he asks again, shall I smite them? And by using this expression, the king is conveying respect to Elisha, God's man, God's messenger. It's almost like a child would look at his daddy and say, daddy, can I, should I, what should I do? It's a moment of endearment. It's showing the relationship that the king and Elisha had and the conversations that they had. And now we're back to where we were last week. We're back in Samaria. Ben-Hadad has become more furious than ever, has surrounded the city, and the famine is at its climax. It's at its worst. The donkey's heads, the dove's dung, all being sold for consumption. There's no proper food. The hyperinflation has taken over, and what used to be trash is what's on the plates and in the bellies of the Israelites. There's even a diabolical evil that's taking place in this city, It's a part of the judgment of God for apostasy. You can go into Exodus and Deuteronomy and study that out further. But go to 2 Kings 6, 26. Go to the 26th verse. Now we're going to get back inside Samaria, back inside the time of the famine. And now we're going to watch the response. We're going to watch the tone, the character displayed by this king. Notice what happens. And as the king of Israel was passing by upon the wall, There cried a woman unto him, saying, Help, my lord, O king. And he said, If the Lord do not help thee, whence shall I help thee? Out of the barn floor or the wine press? And the king said unto her, What aileth thee? The woman answered, This woman said unto me, Give thy son, that we may eat him today, and we will eat my son tomorrow. So we boiled my son and did eat him. And I said unto her on the next day, Give thy son that we may eat him. And she hath hid her son. The terror, the horror of this is that this woman was not in despair because of the horrendous death and murder at her own hand of her child. Rather, she wanted the king to get involved as a matter of legality to find this woman who was hiding her son so that this woman and the other woman could have their belly full and have something to eat other than donkey's heads and dove's dung. This is a picture of where Samaria was. This is part of a mosaic curse that goes back to what God had told them to do and how he had instructed them to live and they are now paying the price for disobedience. And no one would have ever assumed, no one would have ever thought that the disobedience of the people, the disobedience of the leadership would ever bring them to a place where the Israelites, the chosen people of God, would become as pagan cannibals, yet here we are in this place. Disobedience, doubt, has brought them to this place. And if you'll notice how this king responds, in my heart, as I read his response to the woman, I find an appropriate response. I find what is satisfying for me to hear 
that this king, how he responded, go to verse number 30. I find this appropriate. I hope you'd agree with me. And it came to pass when the king heard the words of the woman, what she had done to her son, the fact that she was looking for the other child to consume, that he rent his clothes and he passed by, pay attention to this, upon the wall. And the people looked and behold, he had sackcloth within upon his flesh. This tearing of the clothes, the renting of the garment, it's a sign of distress, a sign of grief. The sackcloth on his body, uh, many, many different things can be happening here, but the two together especially is a sign of grieving, mourning, and sin and repentance. And if the head of the state, the king, the theocratic leader was to have his garments torn and sackcloth upon his body that he was not only repenting for his personal iniquity, his personal sin, but he was also as the national leader, as the king, as the ruler, repenting for the sins of the people, for the nation as a whole. And when I read that, verse 30, how many could raise your hand and say, you agree that this is an appropriate response by the king to rent his clothes and to put on sackcloth in repentance? How many would say that? Some would, okay. I believe this is the appropriate response. I would be worried if he did not respond in this way. I would be worried that if he had heard the words of the woman and didn't want to put on the sackcloth and didn't want to rent his clothes, that there would be a big issue. And so I accepted this as I read it. Well, here we have a repentant king. Here we have a king who's sorry for what he's done and repentant for even what the nation has done. And then I read the next verse. And what happens here is a red flag it's a warning. Something happens here that flashes really, really problematic to me. This is a major issue. This next verse changes everything for the nation's outcome, for this king's outcome, and for the outcome of his sons that were yet to be born. This next verse is so revealing it's so telling and it's so alarming that out of the heart of this supposedly repentant man that this next verse would come. Verse 31. Then the king, he said, God do so and more also to me if the head of Elisha, the son of Shaphat, shall stand on him this day, this repentant king, this mourning, grieving national leader in one breath is on the wall being seen by the people. And I think the Bible wanted to know that, us to know that very clearly, that he was visible to the people. The people were beholding his actions. They were paying attention to what the king was doing. The fact that he had torn his clothes and put on the sackcloth and that he was visible. 
And you see in verse 30 what you think and what you assume and what you can only take at face value as someone's heart who's broken, someone's heart who's really repentant, someone's heart who's really sorry for what's taken place. And they're, they're taking ownership and responsibility for what's taking place. And they're saying, God, hear me. God, intervene. God, have mercy on me. God, forgive me. God, restore me. That's the heart of this repentant person who then would turn away from his wickedness. Repenting is an about face forward march in the other direction. Yet, I don't see that in this next verse. I see that this king, this supposedly repentant man, the next words out of his mouth is a vow. And it's a vow to take the head of Elisha off of his shoulders. How in the world can a repentant man have in the same breath a vengeful heart who is ready for murder? I submit to you that those two cannot live in the same heart. You cannot be a repentant man. You cannot be a repentant woman and in the same breath, in the same line, in the same vein, turn to vengeance and hate and evil and murder. Yet that's what we find. This king who's walking around the city with torn clothes, who's walking around the city in sackcloth, is the king who's just vowed to kill God's messenger. This is an instant tell. This is a quick reveal of the character of this man. There's nothing he can do to really cover this up. It's already out. He has said it out loud, not only to himself, but he's made a vow. And the story is that he sends people to go carry it out. It's one thing to say it. It's one thing to have it in your heart. It's another to vocalize it and to put the plan into action. He wanted Elisha dead. He wanted his head. And maybe the king desired the death of Elisha because he viewed the siege of the city and the famine in the land as God's hand, God's work, God's decision. And maybe it was, well, the closest representative of God. He's the one that will pay. I'm very disappointed in my circumstance. I'm tired of this situation. There's no relief. There's no hope. And I guess we're just going to go take Elisha's head. Maybe then God will know that we're serious, that we want this situation to be different. Maybe it was that he remembered that Elisha had ended a famine before. Maybe he was furious that this prophet of God had not done what he had done before. And so he said, I'm going to kill him. This repentant king. But most likely the reason he wanted Elisha dead was because he expected, listen to me now, he expected that his display of mourning, his display of repentance would change the results of the siege and the famine. But you cannot be genuinely repentant to God and have strings attached to your repentance. You cannot say to God, I'm sorry for what I've done and I'm going to turn, but God, I'm going to do this because we're going to make this deal and you're going to come over here and fix this situation that I've been really struggling with. You're going to fix my money problem. You're going to fix my family problem. You're going to fix my health, whatever it may be. God, there's some strings attached 
to my sorry, repentant heart. If there's strings attached to repentance, it's not repentance, it's manipulation. And this king is proving what's on the inside of his heart. He's not sorry. He's not repentant. He's not broken before God, asking God to do what only he can do. He's not showing or demonstrating trust in God. There's not an ounce of repentance in this man. But he had on the sackcloth. But his garments were torn. But the problem is his mouth revealed what was in his heart. This king is messed up, folks. He's messed up. He's truly a mess. I read this and I fear if this king ever really knew who God was. How can someone who loves God and knows God want to behead God's messenger in the same breath that he expects God to do something? Elisha has been given this king divine instruction on how to win battles. He's looked at Elisha in the face and he's calling my father. And yet he wants to kill him. The deeper I dig in this, there's so much more to this story. And this is really where I want us to end the day. This king is more than just off his rocker. This is so much more than just one bad lapse. This is a huge cataclysmic thing that's been happening now for years and now it's coming to a head. Uh, Students of the Word of God, if you've been saved more than 10 years and reading your Bible, raise your hand. Saved more than 10 years. Does any of this story seem a tad bit familiar to something you've read in 1 Kings? A story about the predecessor of Elisha where Elijah was involved, where Elijah was the prophet of the day, God's man, God's mouthpiece, God's messenger. Do you remember a story where Elijah had just wiped out 850 prophets of Baal and prophets of the grove after praying down fire from the Lord? And that fire comes and it consumes the burnt offering. It consumes the wood and the stones and the dust. And the Bible says it even licked up the water that was in the trench. And there was this wicked, evil woman Vile, nasty, filthy pagan named Jezebel. And when Jezebel heard that 850 of her pagan prophets had been beheaded at the river by Elisha, after God had given Elijah the victory, after God had given Elijah the authority on the mountain, this vile, wicked pagan woman named Jezebel made a vow. She made a promise. She gets so infuriated at Elijah and what Elijah had done that she sends a messenger to give him the news of his life. 1 Kings 19, 1 through 2, it'll be on your screen. And Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done and withal how he had slain all the prophets with a sword. Then Jezebel sent a messenger unto Elijah saying, so let the gods do to me and more also if I make not thy life as the life of one of them by tomorrow about this time. She said, Elijah, I'm gonna cut your head off. I'm gonna take your life just like you took the life of my prophets of evil and wickedness. So let the gods do to me and more also does that sound familiar to something we've read this morning in 2 Kings? 
Go back to 631 of 2 Kings. This is after the king has heard the woman. Then the king, he said, there it is. God do so and more also to me if the head now of Elisha, the son of Shaphat, shall stand on him this day. Same language, same vow, same situation, a ruler calling for the murder of God's man, of God's messenger. You see this king that we've been talking about in Samaria, the king who has called for the death of Elisha, his name is Jeroam, King Jeroam of Israel. And Jeroam had a daddy, and he was also king of Israel, and his name was Ahab. And Ahab was married wrongly to the daughter of a priest king named Ithbel, ruler of the coastal Phoenician cities of Tyre and Sidon. And this pagan, vile, wicked woman, the wife of Ahab, her name was Jezebel. This king in Samaria, his mama is Jezebel. His daddy is Ahab. And this king is doing exactly what he saw his daddy do. And he's doing exactly what he saw his mama do. He knew to do as Ahab did and put on the sackcloth and tear his clothes and be seen visibly around so the people could assume that he was sorry for his sin. Just as Ahab had. And just as his mama, there was something that lived in him, some sort of evil, wicked, murderous spirit that the moment things got to a place, to a point, he said, I'm willing to have his head removed off his shoulders. Just like his mama that wicked woman, Jezebel. And church family, what we're seeing here, what we're taking into context here is the cost of generational false repentance. This is a generational sequence of false repentance. This is a generational sequence of having the talk and having the walk, but not having the heart. And now it has bred another generation in Jerome and he is now willing and able to carry out the generational uh, domino effect of what his mama and his daddy was. Generational false repentance. Generational mistreatment of God's man. Generational doubt of God. Generational wickedness. Generational skepticism. A generational curse. Joram learned from the best. He was just a chip off the old block. He knew how to talk. He knew how to do. His mama was this vile, nasty, murderous woman. And Ahab should have never married Jezebel in the first place. He knew better. God had made it clear that they weren't supposed to marry into pagan families. God had laid it out how things were supposed to be. But Ahab took control of the situation and did as he pleased and he disobeyed God. 
And now here we are, and Jezebel and Ahab's son is going to pay the price for the disobedience of the mothers and the fathers. And if you go back in history and look at all that took place, the best way to do this is to show it this way. We'll call this the kingdom of Israel, King Ahab. This is the kingdom of Judah, King Jehoshaphat. Ahab, king of Israel, disobeyed God and married a wicked woman named Jezebel. Ahab, Jezebel have a daughter. The son of Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, marries this pagan daughter of Ahab and Jezebel. And so now not only has the father disobeyed God and gone against what God had said and married this vile, wicked woman that is mentioned all the way into Revelation. I'm telling you, listen to me now, this one act of disobedience is so cataclysmic for all humanity, it's recorded in Revelation. There's still a Jezebel spirit that lives today on this earth. This woman was vile and wicked. She was beautiful. There was pleasure for a season, but it cost so much to disobey God. Ahab knew, and yet he married her. And now it's not only going to affect Israel, but it's going to affect Judah. And now they're going to marry together. And both sides of this, what should have been godly heritage, is going to be wiped out in blood in three generations because of disobedience from mama and daddy. It all comes back to this moment. The moment of disobedience. And three generations would pay with their lives for what God had told them not to do. Church, with all the love in my heart, with all the concern as a pastor that I can muster, the sincerity of my heart is this. For us to all take this story in and notice the character of God. Notice the consequence of disobeying him and that we as his people, we as his children who thank God now live under grace. Somebody say amen. amen. That those of us that now who live under grace and not the law, that we would somewhere find ourselves willing to ask the question, am I obeying God to the best of my ability? Yes, we are under grace. Yes, Jesus has died and rose again and we have the comfort that has come, the Holy Ghost of God. But we as God's people, we as God's children are in principle, according to scripture, according to the words of Jesus himself, are to be obedient children to God. And we cannot live our lives assuming that disobeying God won't bring about issues and problems. See, you cannot disobey God and it not cost. Or, listen to me. You cannot disobey God and it not cost you. Our God is too holy. Our God loves us too much not to hold us to that standard. But church, you cannot disobey God and it not cost you. 
moms, dads, as the leaders of your home, you cannot disobey God and it not affect generationally your family. The decisions you're making as they're nine years old and 10 years old and 15 years old, if they witness you, generally speaking, in some sort of a half-cocked rebellious spirit towards the things of God, and if the things of God matter not to your family, and if there's no prayer time and no Bible reading and no faithfulness to God's house, then you will pay for it. And it may not be that you pay for it specifically, but your children will pay for it later. It costs not to obey God. My question for you, mamas and daddies, raise your hand, all the mamas and daddies in the building. My question for you is, what are you willing to pay for the disobedience? Are you willing to sacrifice the prosperity and the life that God has for your child because you're not willing to obey God? Is that a price that you're willing to pay? Are you willing to uh, rob your children of the peace and the joy and the comfort of living in a Christian home so that the dogs of this world can have their way and their will and destroy the innocence of your family? Disobeying God will always cost. It just may not cost you, but it'll cost you babies. It'll cost you family. And it'll cost this church. False repentance Learned from the father. False repentance learned from the daddy's actions. And what would be said, what would happen if we were to raise a generation of men and women who had babies, who had children in their home, and instead of them seeing the sincerity of their walk with God, they see nothing but the sham, nothing but the action, nothing but the religious jargon of them putting on the sackcloth and tearing their clothes and coming in and having the speak of church and having the action of being in church. But when they get home, there's no Semblance, there's no similarity, there's nothing that would say, nothing that would speak that Jesus is king of that home. There's a generational process that takes place. And if there's not a core of people, if there's not a group within a church who says, I'm going to obey God, I'm going to follow God, then what you'll wind up with is a church that's generationally full of people who have a religious action, who have the right words, who know when to cry, who know when to raise a hand. But if they were to be inspected, their heart is cold, it's calloused, and it's dead. It costs not to obey God. And see, I, with all the love in my heart, I, I sought wise counsel this week in prayer. So much fasting and praying has gone into this message this week. I've asked God to, to give us exactly what we needed as a church because our burden, uh, even for the last three months, has been God, take us to the next level. God, we need more. We need a deeper walk of faith. We need to see more people saved. We want to see more young men called to preach. More young ladies sell out to purity and living a pure life. And that God would raise up the next generation of people that we're putting in the ground. 
like the Lorraine Sherlins and the David Hensley Seniors and the Roy Rigdons who God's calling home. The problem is when those people start going home, the faithful, the strong, the fortified, when those people go home to heaven and they're not replaced in the ranks by genuine, sincere, obedient people, the church begins to crumble. And I'm not willing, and I don't think you're willing to pay the price of us being disobedient to God. This is not the day, this is not the hour as Jesus' return is imminent. As at any moment, any point of this message before it's over, Jesus could come back. I believe that with all of my heart. But as that day comes, and as the final chapters of humanity are written, and as the attack of the enemy increases and the warfare that we fight elevates to a place that we feel like we can't even breathe, we're going to need some people who will be obedient to God and say, as for me and for my house, we will serve the Lord no matter what it takes. Because I'm not willing to pay the price, the cost of generational disobedience. And with all love in my heart, There's some of you here. You've got on your church clothes. You know how to say what you need to say when you need to say it. Your church family may be fooled. You fooled your pastor. You may even have Pastor Ralph fooled. You look like a church person. You talk like a church person. At the end of the day, you're sitting on a pew and you're consumed with a Jezebel spirit. And you're not here to obey God and follow God. You're here to do harm to the house of God. You're here to be a skeptical, cynical, diabolically wicked person and look like a sheep and act like a sheep but you're here for harm. And with all the love in my heart and with the pleading of the blood of Jesus Christ, this could be your last warning from a holy God. I don't know who you are. I don't want to know who you are. But God does. And you've gone against truth and you've gone against light and you have abused the family of God. And this family of God does not belong to Ralph Sexton nor Winston Parish nor the Baptist faith. This institution of holiness belongs to God Almighty. And you ought not lay hands on the bride of Jesus Christ. Because at some point and some place, he will have had enough. And today may be your last opportunity to come to the fountain of grace and mercy and say, God, I'm sorry for what I've done. I'm sorry for what I've said. I'm sorry for what I've done to you. And ask him in faith believing to save you and repent of your wicked ways. Only God knows the hearts that are in this place. Only God can see 
those things which are eternal. But I've got good news for whoever you are. There is enough grace and there is enough mercy that today could be the day. Today could be the day. The good news is you do not have to leave the way you came. There is a fountain filled with blood and it's enough, it's sufficient to take the most vile offender, the most wicked heart and change it for all of eternity. Do not push against the Holy Spirit of God. If he's dealing with you, if he's been dealing with you for months in love, don't leave this building. Don't become the example that God makes for this church family. I feel such a heavy burden. I've been to a place I've never been all week long. And I've asked God humbly as I know how to do what only he can do. Let me give you these words from Jesus. And then we're going to be very careful as we close this service. And we're going to give an opportunity to for whoever needs to come and pray and ask God to do what only he can do. We're going to do that in just a moment. But to every Christian that's here, every saint of God, no matter how long you've been saved, let me give you the words of Jesus as it pertains to obedience. John 14, 15. It says, Jesus said, if you love me, keep my commandments. How many here can honestly say that you love Jesus? Would you raise your hand? I'm not ashamed to love, I, I, I love Jesus. Praise the Lord. Jesus said, if you love me, keep my commandments. Prove yourself in how you love me and obey me. You say, well, what does it mean to obey Jesus, to follow Jesus, to worship Jesus? A great place to start is in his holy word. It's clear for us. It's there for us. If we'll just be obedient, every head bowed and every eye closed. No one moving around unless you're sick or have to go to work. We just want the Lord to do what he can do today. We want the Holy Ghost of God to inspect the hearts and the lives as only he can. Are there any mamas, any daddies, husbands, aunts, and uncles who say, Pastor, as you were preaching today, God really put his finger on a few things in my life, something in my heart that I'm holding on to, and I know it needs to change. I need to be obedient to the Lord and ask him for help. Is there anyone here, man enough, woman enough, just to raise your hand? I'm not gonna come to you. God bless you, God bless you, God bless you. Hands all over the building. How about over here? Uh, there's something in my life. I need to be obedient. God bless you, sir. God bless you, ma'am. Hands all over the building. Thank you, sir. Thank you, ma'am, in the middle. Thank you. I wanna be obedient to God. Here's what we need to do. Let's stand all over the building. The altars are open. If you raised your hand, I'm going to humbly ask you, humbly ask you, if you're able-bodied, come and pray in one of these altars if your hand went up. Give it to God. Give it to Him today. Say, Lord, help me with this situation, this circumstance. God, give me the faith to believe that you can save my son, save my daughter, save my coworker. Do what only you can do. If you're here today and you're lost and undone without Jesus, you want somebody to take God's word and spend some time with you, be more than happy to take the Bible 
take you off to one of these rooms and have a conversation. But let's follow the Lord. Let's be obedient. Don't try to rush through this. Let's be still. Let's be humble. And let's, God, let's ask God to inspect all of our hearts individually. Let's pray and the altars will open. Now, Lord, we put this in your hands today. We ask you to do what only you can do in the lives and the hearts of these people. God, for all of those that raised their hand this morning, that there's something that pertains to obedience in their life. God, I pray that you'd give them the faith and the courage to step out now and bring it to you in this altar. Lord, in Jesus' name, we ask you to get all the glory. We ask you to get all the praise and all the honor for what's done in this place. The altars are open. All those that raise your hand, come and do business with God. Brother Arthur, you sing. You can be seated as those come to the altar. We'll take a few minutes and just pray. Be tender to the Lord today. Father, to the best of our ability, we've preached what you put in our heart. Lord, we thank you for the relief that's come already as we preach what you put in our heart. Lord, I thank you for the confidence, the authority that you give us. God, if we'll walk humbly with you, you'll give us what we need. Now, Lord, I pray over our church. God, I give Trinity Baptist Church yet again we do almost daily. God, I give it back to you. God, I put it back in your capable hand. Lord, I ask you to lead us, to guide us, to direct us, to give us what we need. Lord, I pray that you would raise up the next generation, God, of faithful Christians in this church. God, people in their 20s and their 30s that will now surrender and follow Jesus be obedient to his word. God, not for the sake of our heritage as a church, but God, for the sake of what you can do for lives in this city, for the families that attend. Lord, I pray if there be one here today that's lost, one here today that's undone, one here today that's living a double life in rebellion against God. Lord, I pray God, in wrath, remember mercy. Holy Father, do what only you can do. And Holy Ghost, convict in only the way you can. I rest in the fact that I am unable to change a life. 
But Holy Ghost of God, you are capable. You are able. And Lord, we trust you. We trust you. We ask you to take this day, seal it in our hearts, and help us to be tender, humble, pliable, obedient children to the Most High God, our good, good Father. Lord, you are good to us. Oh Lord, you're good and your mercy endureth forever. Help me to respond appropriately to the grace and the mercy bestowed to me and help me to be obedient. God, start with me. Inspect my life. Rip me open. Tear out anything that doesn't look like Jesus for your sake. I pray the prayer of John 3.30 that I would decrease, that Jesus may increase. Lord, this is the prayer of our heart. Lord, thank you for the comfort of your word, the reproving of your spirit, and the repentance of a genuine heart. Lord, we give you yet again the Rigdon family today. God, I ask you to provide grace and mercy that's available for them for this day. Father, before you made worlds, you knew that this day would come. Lord, I pray that you give them what you have available for them today. Embrace them with peace. Kiss them with mercy. We give them to you today for special love and attention. Lord, be with our pastor emeritus. God, I pray that you would heal him quickly. See, struggles with sinus and cough. Lord, just touch him today. Lord, we thank you for our time together. In Jesus' name, amen. We'll say good afternoon to our e-church. We'll see you tonight at five o'clock as we study from Psalms chapter 40 about waiting patiently. Five o'clock tonight, we'll see you then to our e-church.